Welcome to Machine Learning. Convolution Neural Nets. Okay, so one of the things I realized while working with convolution neural nets uh, in two dimensions is that generators are your friend. Because what a generator does is it does not evaluate or invoke resources, uh, query resources, until it's being enumerated. And that is a huge advantage when you have large data set. So an example of cats and dogs, where you're trying to determine whether an image is a cat or a dog, the data sets are enormous, the 25,000 images or in this case mine was about 16,000 images but it was still a lot of data I think in compressed form it was like close to 700 meg so a lot of data and uh, the images I reduced down to a small footprint of 150 pixels by 150 pixels so that the neural net wouldn't take forever to learn it still took a long time for it to, to do its training. But I don't have a GPU. And so it's kind of like the argument, who gets to do object recognition? People who can afford an expensive GPU. So that has to be an area where just like a graphics accelerator boards became popular, GPUs for artificial intelligence have to become more cost-effective and part of the circuitry of laptops, PCs, and, and servers. So I, I see that as a, a definite trend because it's almost like I have a toy and I've got a pretty powerful machine. I have a a quad core 16 gig laptop from Apple, a MacBook Pro. So at the time it was pretty top of the line. But when it comes to image recognition, that thing is like a toy. And so you need to have exponential computational capability. And that comes through GPUs. And so it will be interesting to. Google will offer a laptop with a powerful GPU chip or NVIDIA will offer laptops uh, with the GPU chip integrated into the motherboard. And from what I could see when I did a search on the 16 gig GPU, it was about $5,000 for the system. This is a lot of money. So you're talking you know, a laptop with a GPU capable of running the, uh, the powerful AI deep learning networks, you're gonna need to have invested into a laptop for about 5K. So that's quite a bit more than your $2,000 for your normal uh, laptop for, for development. So that suggests that the machine learning uh, 
people will have to have access to the cloud in order to do object recognition. And one thing I was realizing is <clears throat> that the uh, generative function, which I've mentioned in the past, or you, you have created a generator, it has a yield, and then the yield is not evaluated until you enumerate. So when you're setting up the convolution network, uh, you do a fit underscore generator, and that's used to evaluate the, uh, the uh, generator. And so it will then uh, create the it will create the array that is fed into the network. So the array will be um, width and height and the RGB values. Well, and then as it runs, um, it takes quite a few epics, like I, I ran it in three epics with 2,000 uh, steps per epic, and it took quite a while to run, over an hour. And uh, then it, I was able to get like 76% accuracy, which is pretty good. I mean, it's not great. <clears throat> and I kind of wonder if deep learning needs to have a better algorithm. Keras needs to find a better algorithm for getting those solutions quicker. You know, it's finally adjusting, you know, small adjustments. Your learning rate is very small. And uh, maybe it needs to follow more of a genetic algorithm for getting a solution quicker. But, uh, yeah, the old way of finding an answer could be very expensive in terms of computational cycles and electricity. So if you're paying for CPU time on the cloud, you know, reducing down that cost will be a critical component to your design. All right. Well, so that's my thoughts on convolution neural nets. Um, let me just look at this. Okay. Now there's a book that was written called uh, Deal With Your Debt. And in that it said, ask the question, the author asked the question, why do college cost so much? That's been a kind of a question I've had is that, you know, colleges are your prerequisite qualifier for getting a job. And so if you're working towards a professional level job, you know, you go to college. But why do they cost so much? Um, large capital spendings provide the best facilities, faculty and support centers, teams to keep the wealthy alumni donors happy. Universities hope to boost their national ranking by spending on high-speed internet, new gyms, concert halls, and bettering student housing. So what basically that says is it's pretty much a marketing um, presentation for why the uh, university's tuitions are so expensive because you're paying for all 
this quality of life or university lifestyle. And so you can go to your football games or you go to the basketball games or soccer games and, uh, and you enjoy those ex- experiences and that becomes <clears throat> part of the cost. Now, that's almost like arguing uh, why people go to the Aria or Bellagio or Venetian where you spend three to $500 per night and you enjoy the fine dining, the um, buying things, entertainment. And so, you, you know, those costs are expensive, but the, who can afford that? Well, the rich can afford it and the businessmen who are traveling under a on the corporate business expense and so they can they can afford those uh, costly items but for the most part the average person may make a trip once a year and uh, and have uh, a, a form of that type of entertainment faculty salaries are expensive And at the time this was written, which is amazing that you could think that a faculty member would work for 76,000, but you know, at the time the book was written, the median salary for the tenured professor was $76,200. Many colleges are trying to shrink shrink class sizes, reduce, uh, reduce their class loads so the professors can do more research and bring glory to the university. And you know that that's where the big money comes in is university grants where um, government, probably the largest investors has to be government, but the government and then private sector where they're looking to create an innovative idea and materialize it and bring a product to market. And the universities then share in the profits with that company to a certain extent, uh, having captured part of the intellectual property as their own, and then being entitled to royalties and payments and and, uh, partial ownership of the company that, that, that emerges from the universities. So there is a profit oriented relationship. What types of loans are available? Well, okay, let's look at them. A Perkins loan offers a 5% fixed interest rate and a maximum borrowing amount of $20,000. These were all back at that point in time. Um, All the terms and conditions have changed today. At that time, Stanford loan was a variable rate loan capped at 8.25% and a 4% upfront fee. So when you look at that, loan, why would you ever take that variable late loan? Well, because the entry rate at the point you're getting it could be very low. It could be like, let's say 2%. So you're looking at that 2% loan and it, and, it, and it's affordable. You can get into that loan, go to school, and then when you get out of school, repay it back but that is a variable rate loan 
And I'm not sure if that rate can vary during the term of that loan or not. <clears throat> that would have to be determined. But suppose it can. Suppose that it's just the entry point loan and, you, and you're sustained at that loan rate for the whole length of the loan. So some students then would argue that those loans are not fair because some students are allowed in because the barrier is reduced down in terms of the the load to enter in and uh, take classes and then finance those classes through uh, Stanford or Perkin loans. And so they might argue that, hey, I had to pay a higher interest rate than you do, and so my education cost me more money, and it could even be a barrier to the entry saying, I wasn't able even to qualify because the interest rates were too high. So if it were 8.5% and the monthly payments were too high for the, the amount of loan that they wanted to take, then they might say that they would be better off not taking the loan and uh, going out and trying to get a job without a college education. So how much should you borrow? Okay, the answer is none. None is the correct answer. If you don't have money, then you don't go to college. Oh, is that hard or what? But that shit is the truth. How can you spend money when you don't have it? So don't spend the money if you don't have it. So how do you go to college? Well, you go to college on scholarships. You go to college on by saving your money. So if you're a young person now, uh, save your money and, uh, and pay for college as you go. Well, then you're like, well, how do, how do I do that when the college I want to go to costs me $40,000 a year? And uh, even if I was a high school student and I worked all through high school and made, let's say, $15 an hour, I would not even have enough money for the first year of college. Well, you take the first year of college, you go through that, you get the skills that you need, you earn money again for another year, uh, you go to school again, and so forth. And, uh, you know, for me, my spouse put me through college. I went on the GI Bill. She worked. I went to school full time. I carried the maximum credits that I could because I realized that that was the bargain point. So I carried the maximum credits that I could and got through college as fast as I could and then got a, went out and got a job. Okay, that worked great for me. I, did, I came out of college with zero debt. But the point is, is you need to find a strategy that works for you, that allows you to go through college on zero debt. Save your money, then go to college. If you yield to the temptation and accept a loan, then your loan payments begin once you graduate and shouldn't exceed 10% of your expected monthly gross. Now that's really an interesting challenge because, okay, what happens when you graduate from college? You look to buy a house, you look to buy a car, you look to start a family, um, and all these costs are hitting you, plus you have the student loan that's hitting you. Now my daughter, 
carried her student loans for 11 years. And I was so pleased when she told me that she had finally paid it off. So she had saved up some money and then rather than invest that money into a property, which she was intending to do, she paid off her student loans. And I told her that was a huge decision because debt kills your growth. And, uh, and so by her making that decision, she was, uh, became debt-free in that sense, no longer obligated to pay back a student loan, which I was not familiar with what the interest rates were on those loans. So I don't know what the penalty fees she was paying or the interest rate she was paying or what the total amount that she paid on that loan. But, you know, now I encouraged her. Now, the wrong thing to do is to go out and use equity on your home and get a second second mortgage on your loan and using that money to buy a rental property because you can't know the future. So let's say you do borrow against your home and to get another investment. The economy turns south, which it has to because this high inflation is taking profits from people's um, wages and it's doing it forcefully. There's no choice in the matter because inflation means that you have less buying power. And so things are more expensive. Your rent's more expensive. Your food's more expensive. Fuel's more expensive. Housing's more expensive. And so you have less disposable cash, less money that you can actually save. So as that becomes a risk, then as you buy into a rental property thinking that you can just charge people um, a certain rate because of the existing market and the pressure on the market. And then as people, wages are, are under stress, their desire to make the monthly payment uh, decreases so you have to issue out penalties for not paying on time. And then there is the issue where they refuse to pay at all. Then you have to go to a collection agency and, and get... Uh, a partial payment on that uh, that money, or uh, you have to take the write-off, and you carry. You have to make the payment to the mortgage company yourself, and now you're making a, a payment on your own house and and for the rental property. And then, if your renters trash your house, then you have to uh, pay for repairs and adjustments there. So there's a lot of risk associated for rent, real estating. Uh, for income property when you have that tied to a collateral such as your home. And and so I advise against making those kind of investments and save your money. And then when you have a sufficient amount of money, then you use that to uh, buy down the debt so that you're not, you're not, carry the higher risk and so maybe you're at 10% of your income again just like the student loan no more exceed 10% of your income and uh, uh, that then is probably the point where your chances of of default on the loan are low and you'll have enough cash to carry you forward in case there's sudden changes in the economy or in your work uh, environments.
if you earn $40,000, repay the student loan, then uh, your, your payback will be $4,000 a year, 10%, or $340 a month for $26,000 loan. So if you had a, if you, let's say you had a $100,000 loan, then you would pay 10% of that, which would be $10,000 a year. So you're paying roughly about $900 a month. And that's what my daughter was paying, about roughly $900 a month on her student loan. And she had been doing that for 11 years. Now you think about how much pain that is to carry that loan for 11 years, knowing that you can't miss that payment. You gotta go to work every day. You have to make that income. And if you don't, then you're, you're gonna default on that loan. Um, and so I'm really proud of her to have realized that danger and got herself out of it. The average undergraduate loan is about $26,000. 50% of the student enrolled in college do not graduate and leave college with heavy student debt. If you graduate and make less than 40K, the loan repayment amount will be overextended in a ratio to the earnings. Instead of 10% of your wages, the loan could represent 15 to 20%. The heavier debt loan increases the risk of default. Again, you know, there's always that risk associated with the loan, and they call that the bad rate. So there's a certain bad rate, and that's associated with the estimated amount that they expect to make and the probabilities of not being able to make those payments.